I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Are neighbors vanishing in America? Mark Dunkelman thinks so. He's a fellow in public policy with Alfred Taubman Center for Public Policy and American Institutions at Brown University, and he's author of The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. Mark, what is the evidence that neighbors are vanishing? Well, it's very hard to measure exactly how we are each individually spending our time. But the best evidence we have comes from the General Social Survey. And the General Social Survey has asked a series of questions over the course of several decades. One of the questions they've asked is, who have you eaten with? Who have you eaten dinner with over the course of the last month? What's interesting is that over the course of the last several decades, the percentage of people who say they've eaten with a member of their family has gone up. The people who say they've eaten with someone who's a friend who lives outside their immediate neighborhood has gone up. But the percentage of Americans who claim to have eaten with someone who lives in their neighborhood has actually plummeted. And that suggests to me that we're, we're not being, becoming more isolated, but we are choosing to invest on the whole in different types of relationships. You make the point that when it comes to neighborliness, when we grew up matters more than where we grew up. In other words, neighborliness is a phenomenon, it seems, of the 50s that by the 90s had changed dramatically. Why? Well, there are a whole series of reasons why it happened. I think you're, you're absolutely right that we're, you're, you're getting to sort of a crucial distinction. In the immediate post-war era, to be neighborly meant to welcome someone who bought a house on the street with a plate of cookies or to let someone borrow a, a, a cup of sugar. Today, what neighborly means in many more cases is that if you hear something through the walls, it's embarrassing. You don't say anything about the next day. The neighborliness today means that you should leave people alone more than it means that you should engage. And that's sort of a generational distinction between those who grew up in the early post-war years and and millennials and, and more recent generations. But it's a subtle shift that sort of suggests that we are beginning to invest in different sorts of relationships, and less frequently are we investing in the people who live immediately nearby. You say that our national angst about all of this results from subtle changes in our routines. What are those changes? I mean, you're you're pointing out that we're having dinner more with intimates, we're having dinner more with strangers, but again, this, this middle ring of acquaintances somehow is is falling away. Yeah, so the essence of what's happened, it sort of comes down to an issue of motive and opportunity. And the truth is that over the course of the last several decades, we've seen the opportunity that we once had to invest in different sorts of relationships vastly expand. So in ways that weren't possible just 10, 20, 30 years ago, we're now able to choose much more specifically where we want to invest our time and attention. So, for instance, when I go out of town now, I can text with my wife and Skype with my children and keep up with the blogs or the the podcasts that I'm interested in in ways that my grandparents could not have. And the upshot of that expansion is that we are choosing to invest in a much more limited set of relationships. It may be that if our grandparents have had the breadth of opportunity that we have today, they too would have chosen to invest much more time in the 5, 10, 15 people that they love and know uh, most intimately. It might have been that they wanted to spend time 
only talking to people who shared a common interest or affinity or a, a political uh, point of view. The fact is that they chose to invest in what I call middle rings, so relationships that are neither terribly intimate nor entirely one-dimensional. They, they chose to invest in those relationships because they, in many cases, didn't have any choice. And so now that we do have choices, there are more choices, we're investing in different sorts of arrangements. So there must be something good about that, right? We're more in touch with intimates. But what's the downside of this more intimates, less middle ring relationships? There are a whole series of trade-offs. One that I think is particularly important. In the world of, uh, of those who study corporate culture and the, the distinctions between successful businesses and those that are less successful, there's growing awareness that the way you drive new ideas to a corporation is that you take people who have different points of view, different experiences, different fields of expertise, and you force them together. That good ideas don't come like bolts of lightning, that they come when people who have slightly different perspectives begin to share. That's, there's a, there's a soci, uh, sociologist at the University of Chicago named Ronald Burt who once noted that good ideas generally came to people who spanned what he called structural holes in an organization, so people who, who, who knew what was happening in different divisions. We, we've taken that idea, and it's now sort of become almost banal in the world of business management, but we haven't yet applied it to the way that we think about community. We tend, in many cases, to think about who's in a neighborhood or the demographics or the, the socioeconomic statistics. We think less about what are the actual ties that are being bound between, between people who live in a certain neighborhood or in, in the course of a, an individual's everyday life, who are they coming into contact with? And my argument in the book is that the fact that we're losing these middle ring relationships means that we are, in, with less frequency, having real significant conversations with people who have different points of view. So it may be that, you, that your spouse has a, has, has a different political point of view than you do or whatnot. But this idea, and this is a, a, an old concept from a, a Stanford sociologist named Mark Granovetter, that, that there's strength in weak ties, that new ideas generally come to us through weak ties. I think there's a slight distinction to be made between people that we know almost nothing about, people who are the weakest of weak ties, so people that you were maybe on your Facebook page who share pictures of their puppies or their kids or write something about their favorite baseball team. There's a distinction in those middle rings, the people that you met at the PTA or in the bowling league or at, at the coffee shop around the corner, people who you know something more about, it's in those types of conversations that you're going to have real substantive interactions. And that's where you're going to have new good ideas. Maybe one of the most important downsides to this shifting in the way we invest our personal social capital is that we are having fewer and fewer substantive interactions with people who have different points of view. Mark, you use neighborliness and community to mean something a little different. You've cited evidence now that neighborliness is declining, but you say community is neither decaying nor being reborn. Instead, it's transitioning uh, from one architecture or form to another. What does the architecture of community look like today, and what is the effect? You're, you're absolutely right about the, the underlying point. My argument is that over the course of American history, 
there's a certain a certain architecture of community that I call the township. It's a it's a phrase that the word that Tocqueville used in the 1830s and that others have used as well. But that there's a certain sense that in in most of American history, this basic architecture of a township that lasted from the colonial village to the frontier town to the urban tenement to the first ring suburb that the basic patterns of American life suggested that people who had different points of view couldn't avoid one another across those middle rings. Suddenly now today, I think that we are moving from the township to what might be called a network, where there are increasingly really uh, intense nodes of inner ring connected people, people who we we are more uh, intensely connected with the the 5, 10, or 15 people that we know incredibly well, and that we are now connected to a much wider range of people who generally share our interests. So I'm one of about three dozen uh, Cincinnati Bengals fans in the world, and I think I know all of them. Uh, We don't know anything else about one another, but we are all connected because of the web. And I I happen to live in Rhode Island, so there aren't a lot of us around here. So those aren't neighborly connections. I'm also connected to, I I used to work in the world of politics, so I'm connected to a lot of political people. I'm uh, connected, I, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. I can be connected to those people. In each case, we are connected to a whole lot of other people, but it's a different sort of connection than those that pervaded in the previous township architecture of American society. So at the end of Tom Friedman, one of Tom Friedman's recent books, he sort of makes this point that today those who live in Manhattan and Mumbai are essentially neighbors. And I think that there's, there's, that's a sort of profound idea, the idea that the Internet and uh, tele, telecommunications technology and the ability to travel have made it so that we are much more easily able to interact with people around the world. But there's a real distinction, right, between being a neighbor and someone who shares the same concerns about the neighborhood and has a whole variety of points of view about different things and might interact at a coffee shop or a PTA meeting, and someone you know across a single issue of common affinity because you're both in the world of whatever it is, human human resources, technology, and you happen to interact with someone who lives uh, halfway around the world. This distinctions in the quality uh, and the intensity of each relationship. Well, so the real question then is, is there anything that would give Americans the nerve to break out of our cocoons and compel us to build relationships with people who are unlike us, people who disagree with us. Do you see a path in this new network, networked community that would compel us to do that? Well, the upside is there's more opportunity to do that than ever before, right? It's much easier now to to, to reach out to someone who lives across town or around the world. So, so the, the barriers that once kept people apart have diminished. The question and you you got to this in the question, is exactly right. What would motivate us to actually develop those relationships? What would motivate us to give up a little time with our families or a little time talking to people who care about the same things that we do to talk to somebody who often doesn't share a point of view or doesn't come from the same background? The good news, I think, is that in the world of education policy today, there is a growing movement to focus on what some are calling grit, and some are calling non-character traits. And that is the ability of an individual to withstand the impulse to do something that, that they might otherwise be compelled to do. So that you've probably heard of the marshmallow test where they have a test where they put a marshmallow in front of a, 
a four-year-old and put a researcher across the table and they say, you can eat this marshmallow at any time. And then the researcher says, I'm going to go run an errand. And if I come back and the marshmallow is still here, I'll give you a second marshmallow. And they found that the kids who were able to withstand the impulse to eat that first marshmallow are uh, light years ahead of those who aren't able to withstand the impulse in, in, the, in the decades that follow. So that, that trait of, of, of grit uh, is more important than IQ in determining their GPA and then correlates well with with how healthy they are, how much they make, whether they're likely to be in the criminal justice system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it is that same skill, grit, that enables people to build middle ring relationships, that the moment that you're at the coffee shop and someone says to you something that you really disagree with, the question is, are you going to turn away from that relationship? Are you going to lash out? Or are you going to continue to engage? Are you going to be able to say, you know, I, I realize that this person, you know, takes a different po- point of view on a, some political issue I care about, but I'm sort of interested in developing a relationship with them, talking about them, the things that we do agree about, and also in developing some sense of why they think what they do. Um, and maybe in the course of that conversation, they tell me something about something that's happened in the world of plastics or some article that they read in a in a, uh, in a newspaper or a magazine that I, I would never read. It's in those sorts of sort of subtle interactions that those good ideas come. And the good news is that educational reformers are beginning to focus in on how they can imbue future generations of Americans with more grit. I think that probably is the best shot that we've got at compelling future generations to invest more thoroughly in these middle ring relationships. Well, I, I love the solution, Mark, but I have to admit I'm a bit of a skeptic, and certainly what you propose would take a long time. Can you imagine a compelling way to lure more of us into, rather than resisting the marshmallow, is there a way to put a marshmallow, you know, that would lure me into that sort of relationship with different people? There are a few things that could happen here. One is it, it may end up that, that Americans become tired of interacting only with people who generally agree with them and, and they're, they're interested in, in sort of moving further afield. And in fact, I, I recently made a move from Washington, D.C. to Providence, Rhode Island, specifically because I figured that in Providence, I'd sort of get out of the political bubble and sort of meet people who had different uh, points of view. And it may be that there are other, that there are legions of other Americans who have the same, the same impulse. And I think that there are, there are, you're right, there are shorter-term solutions, things that we can do. For instance, you know, when people talk about AmeriCorps, they often think about the projects that individuals do in any given community. They talk about, you know, the, the schools that have been benefited from, uh, from volunteers coming in and uh, parks that have been cleaned up and whatnot. But really, when AmeriCorps was, uh, was enacted 20 years ago, the, uh, the, one of the benefits that those who built it imagined was that people from different parts of America who otherwise wouldn't interact would suddenly have real exposure to one another over the course of several months. So you'd have an 18-month project, and people from Rhode Island and Washington State and Texas and Florida would all be put together and have these sort of substantive interactions that they otherwise might not have. Now, the truth is that there's now much more demand for AmeriCorps slots than there is funding. So like, there is a sort of a, a smaller but I think very substantial and short-term solution to the dearth of middle ring relationships. And I think that there are all sorts of opportunities like that that we might find to drive people together uh, who otherwise might be isolated from one another.
Mark, I love the book. I missed it when it first came out. So, you know, my mistake, my loss, but I'm glad uh, I'm glad it finally came to my attention. The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. Mark, thanks so much for being our guest on Night Cities. Thanks so much for having me. Mark Dunkelman is author of The Vanishing Neighbor, The Transformation of American Community. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Sign up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash podcast to get the five things you should know from this interview and others. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.